Do 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 Every podcast needs a theme song. And here's mine. Hi, folks. Thanks for tuning in to Restoring History. I'm Mike Kelleher, and on today's show, I'm joined in studio by color restoration artist Heather Bates. Say hello, Heather. Hello. And also with us is former color restoration artist and current illustrator of the webcomic Mostache. It's our good friend John Cordes. How are you doing today, John? Good, good. Today, we'll be talking about the basics of comic color, especially as it pertains to art restoration. We'll also talk a little bit about how comics and or superheroes have or maybe haven't helped shape our lives. We'll probably do a little reminiscing about the years the three of us spent together working at Kellistration, and of course, Heather will attempt to read the news. But first, this podcast is brought to you by my company, Kellistration Incorporated. Visit us at Kellistration.com and check out our master series line of high-quality art restoration prints. Our first set, featuring Little Nemo and Slumberland, is available now. These are restored directly from the original art, and you get a total of four 18-by-24-inch prints, full color, and they look great hanging on your wall or displayed in a standard 18 by 24 inch portfolio. New prints are available every couple months, so visit often at K-E-L-L-U-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N.com. That's Kellistration.com. All right, so we'll start off with something that the three of us know a lot about, and that's comic color restoration. So, guys, you've been working with me for, my goodness, Heather, you've been with me for a good five years? Something like that. And, John, you got to be close to that, too, at this point. Right around right? there, yeah, yep. I don't know. 2000. 10. Yep. Yeah. So, just to give you guys an idea of what the color restoration is, when you when you're reading an old comic book and you look at the colors, there was a very limited color palette. It was 64 colors, and these colors were achieved with uh, percentages of the CMYK. CMYK being cyan, yellow. Oh, I'm sorry, magenta. cyan, magenta, yellow. <laughs> and K is for black, and the reason K is for black is because uh, K stands for key, and key just being the color that all the other colors are set to. So they put the, uh, although I don't think the black was laid down first, the other colors had to fit within the within the line art. So it was basically just a way for the printers to stay within the lines, and that's where your key comes from. In standard comic books, up until I think it was about 1984, comics were done with a 64 color palette. And this was achieved with percentages of 25%, 50%, and 100%. Well, of course, and 0% of the C, M, and Y colors. You only see 100% black in these old comics unless the artist put in a put in what we call a zip tone, give a gray appearance. The colorist would not add, uh, would not add any kind of black to to the colors up and again up until like around 1984. So what we do is we have to take we're given the original art, which could be from many different sources, which uh, I talked a little bit about in last episode, and we'll go into it a lot more on future episodes. But we have the digital file of the nice clean line art, all in black. And we take a scan of the original comic, and we always try to find the original comic. We don't want a reprint of the comic. So we, if we were working on a, an Amazing Spider-Man issue, we wouldn't settle for a Marvel Tales reprint because the colors would have been changed for, for, for that book, most likely. So we get, the, we get the scan of the book, and we scrutinize the dot patterns. So, of course, yeah, the, the, we figure out the 25% and the 50% and the 100%, which a lot of times are a lot more difficult than you'd think as as I'm sure John and uh, Heather would attest to, because the printing was just so horrible on some of these books, where the the inks would get so just so muddled together and everything just prints way too heavy. Or, of course, uh, it could be way too light. And it's hard to tell the 50% from the 25% of times. There have even been times when I've had 100% and, uh, that were printed so poorly. It's all right. <laughs> 
we've even had 100% that are printed so poorly that when they're printed over, let's say if I had a 100% magenta printed over a 25% cyan. So you're looking at a solid, a solid block of magenta printed over the 25% dots for the cyan. And a lot of times what would happen is in the printing process, wherever the magenta was hitting the cyan, where, where they were laying over each other, there would be this, uh, what, what we call picking. And the ink, magenta ink, would be pulled off by the, by the cyan plate, leaving the appearance of little dots inside of the magenta, although they're not supposed to be there. Luckily, the, all the colors are printed at different angles, if you look at the dots, of course, it just, it's straight lines of, of dots, and they're all, they're all printed at different angles. And so we're able to take a look at the angle of the dots and determine whether, using that angle, determine whether the dot is uh, cyan or magenta. When, you're, uh, when you started working on this stuff, Heather, mm-hmm. what, what was the hardest thing for you to figure out? The, uh, the dot patterns mean. In terms of the, uh, the percentages or... Yeah, the percentages. Some other stuff is easy, like some of the Archies. Right. Well, on some of the old, the 1950s books, the Atlas era, we found that a lot of the 50% were represented by stripes instead of instead of dots, which made it very easy to uh, to figure out. But we would find ourselves trying to determine what the what the dots were, whether they were 25% or 50%, uh, based more on the thickness relative to each other. And so at, at certain points, it would be a nice, it, it would be very easy to tell the difference between the two, the, the, the 50, the 50% uh, and the 25%. But unless they were like right next to each other, the printing could be so bad, or even the production uh, was so bad when the, when the film was shot of the of the color plates, nothing, nothing came out right. Mm-hmm. And so and that, that's another interesting thing. When you see an error in printing, it's all, it's not necessarily the, the printing process. Sometimes it's uh, during the production process where they're shooting the film. They might shoot things a little too dark, a little too light, which we, thought we find quite a bit in with line art. Found a lot of film that was shot from original art for the comics, and they still had the pencil lines in there. Generally, you'd go in; someone would go in and erase the pencil lines, but we found the, the lines that were still there. And then, of course, a lot of inkers would ink in a really light line. And so, during the during the shooting of the film for printing, production people would darken up all of the line art to try to get all those really fine lines in there which, of course, just darkened up everything and would also sh- uh, show up a lot of uh, pencil lines. And I saw that a lot in, in early Fantastic Four issues inked by Vince Coletta, where there was, a, there, uh, there was pencil lines all over the place. But that, that just goes to the show. There's so uh, Along the, the process of printing from, from the time when the book leaves and gets to the printers, and then gets gets printed and sent off to the to the stores. There were just so many levels of possible problems, and we have to deal with every one of those and try to figure out exactly what to do with those with those problems. And even sometimes when um, the uh, the people who did it before the originals, they wouldn't cut out everything. Oh, the, oh, okay. The little old ladies. The little old ladies. Right. Okay. So, as legend has it, uh, of course, we do every, we do all color separations on the computer now. But way back when. Uh, being when I was a child, they would have they would take a photocopy of the original art. The colorist would hand color the original art. We're all laughing now because I'm, get, I'm getting a phone call. Um, 
the old lady's calling. But so the 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 colorist would hand color a copy of it, and they'd send this color guide over to a person. It was a, a color separator, and what they would do is they had these sheets of plastic with little dots printed on them. And the dots were in the 25% or 50% or 100%. And they would take an X-Acto knife. They would lay the film over uh, over the original, uh, uh, another piece of the original art, this one without the without the color guides on it. And they would cut out exactly where, I'm, I'm using hand motions for you folks so you can you can see what I'm talking about. I re- I'm now realizing that it's dumb. Uh, I'll pretend, yeah, I'll pretend, I'll pretend you can for video to the people here yeah, in the studio. Yes. Oh, oh, don't need my mug on that. <laughs> on the internet bad enough to hear my voice and so let's uh, let's just imagine that you have a a panel of a comic book and Spider-Man is in one, is in the panel and Dr. Octopus is in the panel so for Spider-Man's face they would sit down and they would cut out using the X-Acto knife they would cut out the shape of Spider-Man's head they would do one a solid yellow and then they would do another one exactly that shape of solid magenta. And then for Doc Ock's face, they would do the same thing, but it would be a 25% yellow and then a 25% magenta, which, of course, they would overlay and would make a flesh color. And that was something interesting that I found out, that uh, Caucasians in comics were always 25% yellow and 25% magenta. Always. There were, no, there were no variations. There were some horrific variations for Asians. <laughs> As we, as we found out, and a lot. Yes, in the early, uh, in the early golden age, especially in I think probably in uh, Captain America comics that during the during the war, um, we would find that uh, Asians were just a hundred percent yellow. They, they they just they brought that stereotype to its to its limit. Is is this stuff that you are talking about? Like, did they keep these at the warehouses and stuff that you visited? Like, is that sort of stuff kept? No, um, the uh, the warehouse where the all the film is, is kept. It's all the film that survived over the past uh, 50, 60, 70 years. For some of the more current things, I'm, I'm just going to arbitrarily throw out a date, let's say from 1980 on, uh, they would have not just the, the line art, the film for the line art, but they would have... Uh, some film for the colors too. Of course, a lot of people would say, "Well, why don't you just why don't they just use that? They can print they can print that." Well, the problem was that back then, obviously, if you picked up a, ki- a comic book when you were a kid, or if you look at comics from like the '60s, '70s, uh, and early '80s, you can notice those dots. Those dots are nice and big, and that was just two limitations of printing. And of course, now you look at the comics, and the, it's called the line screen. That's the that's the space in between the dots. And so the the line screen now is so much finer. It's a, it's like a high definition version of of the printing. And so we can't take those old that old film and print it without having those dot patterns in there. And so just to me, and of course, if you're going to show those on the internet, then you're just going to see the dots. The way that we do it now, we do it all, in, uh, do it on Photoshop, which gives a solid representation. So now in the digital age, they can take that same file, they can put it on the internet for you to look at in the in a high, high quality, high definition, or they can print it out and still do it at the, the finer, uh, the finer dots, the you finer screen. You finish your story about the little old ladies. I'm, I'm getting to it. <laughs> calm, calm down. John, ask me a question. <laughs> trying to rein you in. So, so where was I? Um, cutting out magenta and yellow for Spider-Man's oh, colors. Oh, that's pretty much it. <laughs> it is? 
<laughs> that was it. And the, well, the, and the, 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 and they missed them. We call it, it would say little old ladies, but I've never had the pleasure of talking to anyone. And I'm hoping someday I would love to. I'd love to sit down and just talk to one of these people. A, just to make sure that we are 100% correct about these <laughs> stories that were, that have been passed down to us. And just be, just to be able to, uh, you know, to see what, you know, what, because to me, it sounds like kind of like sweatshop conditions. But right. of course, in, in reality, we say little old ladies, it was probably just, uh, maybe housewives, uh, people that just wanted a little bit of extra money and they would sit down and but I would like to know how long it took them to do a page because even on the computer you're looking at an average of like 45 minutes to an hour mm-hmm. to do a to do a page correctly uh, and With of course technology not yeah, an right, exactly. yeah. <laughs> and of course we're able to do all three colors at one time where they had to do each color I mean, it's it, it was a tedious oh yeah endeavor. yes and I would love to know how when they do an explosion how do they cut so, you know, did they have, is, is it just their opinion of what that explosion would look right. like? Because, I mean, we're doing with eight, when you're sitting down and painting on the paper with inks, I'm assuming it's not always a perfectly sharp line for them to copy over, to trace over. Yeah. So I would love to know how long it took them to do to do this stuff. But I didn't even think about explosions. Yeah. That would be Oh, and the cloud. Oh, yeah. Any of the, oh, uh, no. any of what we call the cuts, and uh, for you out there, we refer to a cut as anywhere that there's color that there's no black line for it to go against. You usually see this in water, clouds, explosions. You know, sometimes you'll see it as shadows on faces or clothing. We refer to that as a cut. Anything else that you wanted to, that, that I didn't finish? No, I think that's it. That was it? Yeah. Okay. Unless John has anything to add. I, I, I would, the only thing I was going to say, like as far as you answering, you know, what was the hardest part, I, I always found difficulty in the background sometimes, because I knew the characters colors so well, yes. of, of the different things, but if I saw like trees of different colors, or um, you know, the green in a tree versus the brown in the tree, sometimes the, the color representations kind of blended together, Right, they, they always messed me up. And, and, and I'll uh, talk for a few minutes about uh, just old coloring. You're talking about backgrounds, I think that's where you see the artistry in old coloring. A lot of people just look at old coloring, it's just these big block colors uh, with a couple bright colored superheroes in front of it. In actuality, there's a lot more thought put into it than that. And you can see that, I think, in the probably like the early 1970s. You can see where that started falling apart. And I'm, that's another thing I would love to uh, to talk to someone about and find out why the, why they made this uh, decision. But if you look at some er, like early Fantastic Four comics, you got the Jack Kirby's uh, Jack Kirby books, and you look at the colors, and you'll see the backgrounds are very simplistic. You'll have the Fantastic Four in, in, in the front, and you'll have them, of course, they're all in their blue suits, which uh, I think were pretty much universally uh, just 100% cyan. Sometimes they throw in a uh, 25% magenta on top of I it. Remember, and, um- uh- the thing shorts. Thing shorts were right. You, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Uh, for some reason, yeah, the thing shorts were always a different color, um, and I, I would assume that's for value. Uh, the the value because up against his orange skin, maybe the blue was a little too light, so they needed to throw in that. But that that brings me back to the to the backgrounds I was just about to talk about. You look at the simplicity of the backgrounds, and you can almost think of it as being lazy, but it's actually just a really good artistic choice. And uh, I started talking about Fantastic Four, but I'm gonna make it easier. I'm to jump to Spider-Man. And so Spider-Man, uh, he's, he has the red and blue, which of course is 100% uh, yellow, 100% magenta, and the blue varied, uh, but I think 100% cyan, 25% magenta was pretty standard across there. And so if you had Spider-Man swinging across a, uh, across uh, the city, as he did frequently, you'd have lots of buildings in the background and lots of cars. They showed a lot of restraint where in the background it would be just like all shades of blue or all shades of light purple. And, of course, we had very limited uh, color palettes. There might be only like four or five different shades 
that you could that you could go with. But they refrained from making each building a different color and cutting out each window because it distracted a little it, it bit. It would be a distraction. Right, exactly. And so a lot of times the city would just be one big block of uh, blue. And again, you might think of that as lazy, but no, it's, it's, it's a choice because Spider-Man just pops right out yeah, against that background. should be the focus. Exactly. When you start looking at you know, books from the 1970s, especially like Daredevil, it had the same thing. But then they started coloring each individual building. And the good colorist, of course, would know to keep a, you know, a very simple color palette in a background. So it would be all shades of blue or all shades of magenta. But then you would see just this hodgepodge of colors. It just it, it made things way too complicated and... The, it, it destroyed the, a lot of the depth that we're seeing. And, of course, we started seeing a lot more of that when digital coloring started in the... Uh, I don't know if you scrutinize anything from, like, the uh, yeah, mid-90s. sometimes overdo it, highlights. Oh, my God, oh yes. The, uh, uh, I remember seeing a couple of issues of Ghost Rider, and I'm going to... I'm going to guess probably between like 95 and 97, uh, the year 95 and 97, not actually number. And I just remember the, the colors were just so, they were just fighting with each other. That, that, so that's something to be said about the old, about the old coloring. There was, a, uh, there was a lot of thought put into it. Now, of course, I think that thought might have been born out of the necessity to keep everything nice and simple. But still, uh, you know, just artistically, someone who didn't know what they were doing, they could have Spider-Man flying across the city and the city could be at night it could be a uh, 100% cyan and a 50% magenta and you know Spider-Man's costume would just blend in way too much it wouldn't wouldn't pop on there so a good colorist is going to put about a, a mostly 25% in the back, 25% cyan in the background and maybe a few accents of 50% and then maybe a couple little accents of uh, 50% cyan and 25% magenta so a nice light purple just things like that all right, let's go on to our next subject here, and this is just a little bit of fun, and how comic books have affected our lives. Me and my buddy Len were talking a little bit about how, how comics influenced us a little bit in, uh, growing up, how it didn't, it didn't make me uh, a more voracious reader, but I think it made me a more intelligent reader. I'm not sure if it's because I had the pictures to go along go along with it. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But as I, as I mentioned, my vocabulary got better. I think my sense of morals got better. I think my, my ideals of right and wrong started to become more cemented while I was reading these books. And, of course, that caused problems, too, because you know, you're looking at an idealistic world of comics where the good guy always ultimately wins, and you're trying to you're trying to compare that to the real world, and you're not seeing that same kind of fairness <laughs> in the world. And I'm not sure how that really played on on my idealism growing up. I think I've certainly become a lot more cynical in my, in my, in my old age. Uh, but yeah, so uh, let, let, let's start with the easy ones. John, you're a comic collector. Do you remember what the first comic you ever bought was? first comic I ever bought was, uh, it was an early 90, like 91, that's probably when I started, it was a, a fall special, like a fall Marvel special. Okay. It had uh, Squirrel Girl was in it. Oh. <laughs> uh, was this more like one of the Marvel superheroes uh, specials? Yeah, or? I mean, I, I guess at the time they had, you know, just seasonal specials, it was just uh, some shorts yep. of different characters, and I just remember picking it up because it had a, an X-Men cover with a Sentinel, and the X-Men toys were, were kind of big at the time, Yeah. so that was my first thing, I just saw it, and that kind of just... Developed into G.I. Joe comics, um, Spider-Man from there. But that, that fall special was my first. And, and when you read that, uh, well, about, uh, approximately how old were you? 
I'd say 10. Okay. So when, when you read your first, did it, did it hook you automatically? Were you interested in comics, but just didn't have the opportunity to get them? Did you just like see it on the shelf and magically like this glowing light appeared and uh, you, you were drawn magically over to it or what A was? A little bit. I mean, I, I guess it just sort of uh, was something new. I didn't really have anything before that. I was always into G.I. Joe toys. So I was always into that fantastic, you know, imagination aspect of it. So just seeing these new worlds that I didn't know anything about, um, you know, pulled me in. Right, now, Heather, you, you, you don't read comics. No. No. Well, <laughs> so, so, what, so what was your introduction to superheroes? Obviously, since the year 1999 when the X-Men came out, superheroes have been everywhere. So you were, uh, you were probably like in high school around that time, yeah. I'm guessing. Um, and so still relatively young. Mm-hmm. And superheroes are now being... Forced into your life, yes. Because if you're, if you're into pop culture at all, which of course, uh, if you go into the movies, you're going to be into it. So, so what was your first uh, foray into superheroes? Um, well, my brother is obsessed with Batman, okay. And we used to watch that campy um, Adam West Batman. Oh, beautiful! Time. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I got introduced through that, I think. And uh, my mom used to always collect comics. Hi, mom. <laughs> And, Your mom uh, collects comics. She does. She does. She's got like I remember seeing Smurfs and one about the Pope for some reason. Oh yes, do you remember that one? <laughs> I don't even know if you were born. This is the very early eighties. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, Pope John Paul II. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. She's got something like that. <laughs> Who published this? Was this Marvel? Mar- was it Marvel? Marvel, yeah. yeah. Uh, she's got, <laughs> got Smurfs, the Pope, um, those true love ones. Oh, she has some of the old romance books. Romance. Oh, nice. Yeah. I don't know if she still has them or what. I want to see those uh, because Kirby did a lot of those old romance books. I'm sure she'd love to send them over to you. (laughs) Um, And my brother Mike also likes comic books, and I used to steal them from his room. Sorry, Mike. And um, I would draw pictures out of them and then put them back. But he would always catch me because I never put him back in alphabetical order or whatever <laughs> order he had to come up with. There are so. every, every collector has their own sort of organization to it. Well, not just that. <laughs> and there are very few genres of people on this planet that are more anal than oh, a comic right. collector. Yeah, you, they can smell it. My wife makes fun of me because I, you yeah. know, I could, she would pull out an issue and I'd be able to go in there and find which one she took. Because I, knew, <laughs> yeah. I knew it. That's what he was like. He'd be like, at least I put it back. <laughs> you know, I didn't spill stuff all over it or. <laughs> or whatever, so you know, at least I put it back. Well, that that was good of you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I that, still don't read them. I just you just work on I just them. Work on them. Yes, which so. probably aggravates a lot of people. It kind of does because they'll yeah. ask me like, "What's?" going on with this character. I was like, I don't know. I only work here. Well, I, well, I get a, I get enough of that because I, I've kind of fallen out of comic reading. And I, I, I still do uh, buy occasional books, but it's not the mainstream stuff anymore. It, like right now, the only things I've been excited about uh, recently, I've just finally gotten, finally gotten into Fables. And other than that was just the Black Sad series. Which I'm a huge fan of. Oh, I like yeah. the drawings in that one. You, you, you would love the story too. You should just sit down. And that's what I'm seeing on the wall over here, right? Oh yes, that, that's that's something we should do for the packet. We should force Heather to read a book. I would love to choose some books for her. To read. Oh yes, oh yeah, oh, my God. yeah, and then you come back and review a book report. A, can we you, do that? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I was going to say. Re- I was going to say you'll review, get grades yeah. too. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll let the listeners grade you, which will be oh. even better. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness! Don't 
Yeah. Oh, so yeah, I get a, I get a lot of people criticize me for working in the business, but I don't know everything that's going on in the business. I try to tell them, well, I'm not an editor, and specifically, what I do has to deal with old comics. So as long as I know about the old comics, you yeah, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, 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 I frequently get people looking for work, and on occasion, when for, for whatever reason, they find out that some of the people who work for me are not comic book fans. It, it really, they're like, I'm, I'm trying to get into the industry, Do and I, I get people. No, 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 no. I try to keep you in the background. Thanks. Yeah. I, I actually enjoy that. <laughs> this might actually work into our later topic with talking about calistration, is that I actually, at, when, when we first started calistration, we opened up an office, and we had everybody working in, in one big room. I envisioned having, like, you know, five to ten just diehard comic geeks sitting down and, and working together. And at first, I thought it was unfortunate that I only had about two or three, uh, John John being one of them. I found it was great because I would sit there and we could sit while you know while we're working, we could talk about comics, and I had someone that I could talk to. Uh, I missed that. Yeah, oh, oh me too, oh, believe me. Uh, uh, yeah. But I found that if I had four or five people in the room with me who were passionate about comics, we got half the amount of work done because we spent most of our time becoming... It, it, it's easy to sit here and say that, oh, well, you're, sitting, you're drawing, you're doing production work. It's, you can talk while you're working. It's like, yes, but if you're like me, your hands start flailing, sitting there yapping. And it, it, it's a lot of fun, and it, and it was, but you know, thank God I didn't have that... I didn't, it said I had a bunch of... Screaming girls who are afraid of bugs. Hey, and, hey. <laughs> that was only once. Or twice. I, well, I, 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 I question your accounting. I abilities. vaguely remember that. I don't remember what kind of bug was it. Did we know? Uh, I vaguely do, remember that. It, there was something flying around. Could yeah. have been a dust mite for all I know. It they, was they, not. It uh, had wings. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? The office and how awesome it was. No, but we were talking about something about that about before that though. Um, <laughs> it was great to have comic your your vision oh your vision. okay now even before that because i just went off on a really big tangent we were talking about hmm i don't want to rewind the tape no <laughs> ah, screw it tape what i hope tape? i hope we weren't talking about something you cared about because we're just going to continue on now did we okay. finish the morality part of it do we i mean did we choose oh, I, uh, gonna, oh I thought you're going to ask i think so that's where we were we were talking about superheroes and how they affect us so we talked a little bit about how we got into it now in terms of the simple question is did comics affect your life definitely i okay. mean i mean when i was uh first starting out I, I hate to give the simple answer that spider-man was my favorite hero at the time but he he was yeah and I kind of called it the, my Peter Parker complex. I kind of thought, what would Peter do <laughs> yeah. in, in whatever situation? And I, was, and I would always try to do the right thing. Um, so I, I always grew up with that sort of complex, you know, trying to, trying to be Peter Parker. My friend would make fun of me. I would actually try to climb the walls to see if I could do it. We're sitting in the studio in my home, and we're in a room. I bought the house that I grew up in. And right now, I'm not only sitting in the room that used to be my bedroom when I was, uh, when I was a child. I'm sitting uh, pretty much where the center of my bed was right now. I'm, I'm literally sitting talking to you right now where I was sitting when I read all the Spider-Man comics. You can see there's a little bit of a wall right behind you. And, of course, my being maybe four feet at the time, I would wake up every morning 
and check to see if I had spider powers. Yep. I'd put my hands against the walls, and I would push down. And ho- and some days your hands would kind of stick there a little bit. Don't give me that look, Heather. <laughs> and, and I would see, and I would push. And then if uh, if those stuck there, I'd put my foot up there, and of course, inevitably, they'd go down. And so then I'd take my socks off to see if it wasn't to see if it was my socks <laughs> that were making it slippery. And of course was never able to do it. My mom caught me once doing this, and I, I felt more embarrassed as if I was doing something else. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't need to say that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. I never did. No? No. You, okay, well, well, you're a huge Harry Potter fan. You mean to tell me you've never picked up a wooden spoon and tried to cast spells? No, because um, I wasn't that young. When How old were you when you read Harry Potter, read your first book? Um, the first book, I was probably like, 12 or 13. Yeah, so right around there. Well, you're a girl. You're a little more, <laughs> a little more sophisticated than us. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I'm so mentally a 12-year-old. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't wake up trying to climb up walls I anymore. Still to, well, well, that's just because I'm too heavy now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, I had the same thing with uh, Spider-Man was my favorite character. And, yeah, and Peter Parker. I, I found myself, especially when I was uh, going to high school, I was very awkward. Very, very awkward. No. Yeah. <laughs> I would quote lines from the Spider-Man comics to people, uh, assuming that they didn't know what I was talking about, and just trying to sound funny and cool. And so, so I would just say, there would just be, whoops, I don't know what Spider-Man would have said during an issue. I would avoid what Peter Parker said, though, because he was, he was the awkward part. You know, but I wanted to be Spider-Man. I wanted to be the guy who could be not just heroic and strong, but he knew what to say. Yeah, and he knew how to, uh, you know, he knew how to banter back and forth, and, and actually, kind of. Building. Not to get too geeky about uh, Spider-Man, but was there a certain writer who spoke to you the most, as far as like Peter Parker's? Oh voice? yeah, uh, uh, the Len Wein years. Okay. Yeah, when uh, especially him with Ross and with Ross Andrew. Uh, work, yeah, th- those were those are my favorite. My For me, favorite it was books. Roger Stern. Yeah, that, well, that would, that's funny because Wien was. Uh, I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I think I, it, I think I, it is. I say yes. Could so. be wine. Could be yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So when, when I started, and I was growing up. It was Wien who was right. And when you started, and you, uh, you, it must have been Stern who was. Well, when I first started, it probably was. I, I think I'm pronouncing it right. David Michelini, like the McFarlane years. Michelini. I think, yeah, I think that's it. Those, that's. I think he was writing at that time. But when I got back into like back issues, uh, Stern spoke the best to me. Well, with, with Stern, Jr. And, didn't Stern write the uh, the Kid Who Collects Spider Man? Yes, arguably one of the greatest comic stories ever. Yep, I mean he it, did the Hobgoblin issues, which is you know if I was to name like one issue, uh, Amazing Spider Man two thirty eight yes, was my first, favorite first yeah. issue of all time. Yeah. Uh, he did like the Alien costume, like, all that era is. Uh, I think that, yeah, all, all that was Roger Stern. So yeah, that's that's a story to have Heather start with the Kid Who Collects Spider Man. Don't give her don't give anything away <laughs> about it. That's a great. That's a great. It's, a, it's only like a ten-page story, I think. It's, I think it was only like half so. an issue or something like that. Yeah, it was, a, it was a short story in the back of uh, I want to say two forty-seven. Issue number for that one. Yeah, I, I think it was around two forty-seven. Obviously, you're Heather. You you didn't read comics, so there's no, no first uh, book. Did and I'll even expand this uh, uh, for, for for your sake. Uh, I'm going to expand into like a Harry Potter or uh, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, anything. Did anything affect you growing up in terms of fiction? More than just, oh, I'm a big fan and I like it. Did anything like profoundly affect? I don't know if uh, people that have never experienced it can understand it, but I I know me and John have. Comics, they profoundly affected our lives. In one way or another, it was a really important thing to us. It was more than just entertainment. It was something 
it, it was something that we held really dear to us. Well, that's how I feel about Harry Potter. Yes, and that's why I make fun of you about it. Yeah, and right. that's okay. <laughs> I never tried to climb up walls, but... So what, what was it about Harry... Cause that's, now, is it Harry, the character Harry Potter or the entire world? Is there one character in particular? The whole thing. Okay. I just love the whole thing because it's... You know, you start off and you're, you know, Harry. And you're this little kid and his situation is horrible. And he brings... he, he Horrible? He had a house to live in, he had food to eat. Oh, yeah, but they were very mean to him. So he he grows up and he kind of comes into his own, and then at the end of the story, spoiler alert, he saves the whole world. And uh, our world, know, the Muggle world. He saves the Muggle world and. Wow. The music. Love that word, Muggle. Always love that word. Yeah. I never thought about it. Yeah, huh. I don't know. I'll take the opposing. Thing. I hate it. <laughs> you, know, yeah. um, you know, so I mean, it's a story about love and loss and death and all that, and it's just perfect. Now, do you want to see it? You know, I know it ended and everything, but do you ever hope it came back? Or Hell it, yeah. yeah. I would I mean, love like, that. Sometimes I, I, whenever a story ends, I'm like, I, I like the fact that it's just this beginning and an end to it, and, and just it's that. Depending on the story. Yes, it, it, it right, does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wish Star Wars had just ended. Yeah. <laughs> Although I am excited. I, I can't help but say. I am too. I uh, am too. <laughs> how can you not be? I'm just, I'm, and I have the same problem with, uh, with the, the new DC movies uh, coming out. I'm not a DC fan. And I've hated almost all the DC character movies up to this point, with a few exceptions. But I can't wait to see them. I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment or if it's just because you know I, I grew up with this stuff. And I, I've had this uh, you know conversation before, where you know I spent the first 30 years of my life, and I'm not going to go so far as to say being an outcast as being a comic collector, but collecting comics, being into these superheroes was not really smiled down upon. You weren't you weren't the cool kid if you were reading comics. And today, it's so mainstream. And I look at it, I waited 30 years for this acceptance that these characters... I definitely didn't advertise it when I was in high school. I I don't think people would even know that (laughs) I read them. And and I'd like to take a little bit of credit. I'd like to tell you, if you like the new Avengers movie, but I've never read comics, you've got to thank people like me and John, because we supported all these for the decades before they made their transition transition to movies. Thank now, you, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah, and John. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, great. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey. He he's is not, a beefcake, you know. He, well, uh, <laughs> he's not coming on the show, Heather. Come on. He, I can dream. No, he, he's not showing up. I won't, I won't even let him. If he, if he called, <laughs> oh. I, well, in fact, if he called, I would talk to him just right in front of you. I just have... I grabbed that phone yep. out of here. <laughs> Where were we? Thor. Thor. <laughs> Avengers, and we should thank you. Yes, thank you again. Thank you. Should you. Continue to, you should continue to thank me for that. All right. Oh, well, John, you had asked me about if I wanted Harry Potter to oh, come yes. back. Yeah. And they are bringing um, the world back. Okay. The uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. But that's set seventy years before Harry. Are those going to be like um, like Harry Potter, Harry Potter in length, as far as those books or those short stories? Or um, I well, don't, honestly, don't even know. That <coughs> it's based off a book, and it's just like one of their school books. Oh, okay. And um, so I really don't know how it's going to play out, but it'll be interesting to be back in in that world again. Oh. So it'll probably bring back characters like Dumbledore. And I still haven't seen the last two movies, and I'll let you borrow them. I've got them. 
You do? Yeah. I'll watch them. Oh, it's, it's not out of uh, lack of having them that I haven't watched it. Uh, I've, my life's been going on fine without knowing what happens. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. In fact, to an extent, I kind of enjoy being able to be ignorant of the... Of the whole thing. Well, I, I told you. Remember? Spoiler alert. I he forgot. Saved, he saves everybody. Forgot. Yeah, already. I just told you again. Forgot already. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Stop this fun. And let's get on to some news. Here we are. The news with Heather Bates. All right. Marvel and Netflix have announced that Rachel Taylor will star as Patricia Trish Walker in Marvel's, a.k.a. Jessica Jones, an all-new 13-episode series premiering on Netflix in 2015 following Marvel's Daredevil. More famously known as Patsy Walker in the Marvel Universe, the character of Walker has roots dating back to 1944 with her first appearance in Miss America Magazine No. 2, had her own titles, Patsy Walker, which ran 124 issues from 1945 to 1965. Patsy and Hetty, which ran 110 issues from 1952 to 1967, and a single issue of A Date with Patsy in 1957. Walker was eventually given the hero identity of Hellcat in 1976. Now, John, are you familiar with uh, Patsy Walker? Passingly, I, I mean, I know I know the character of Hellcat. I believe she's yellow costume. Yes, but I mean, yeah. beyond, I really don't know a terrible amount about her. Yeah, because uh, the, 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 of course, the Patsy Walker that I'm familiar with is in from these old girl comic books from the. Uh, from the Atlas era. But of course, your Marvel can't let, they can't have a character without eventually giving them some <laughs> kinds of superpowers. I think Uncle Ben's probably the only person that's su- survived that simply because he's been dead. What the, about uh, Aunt May? Well, I'm pretty sure they must have given Aunt May some kind of powers at some point, especially with this whole spider universe. There actually thing. is a spider verse that I think, I forget what her name is, um, but there is like an alternate world where Aunt May had the powers. Yeah, she's had Spider Man team up issue or something. That so. doesn't surprise me. Everybody in the Marvel Universe eventually gets powers. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. You interrupted me? I did. <laughs> okay. Taylor will star opposite Kristen Ritter, who plays Jessica Jones. Is that John Ritter's daughter? I, had I no don't idea. think so. Hmm. Check. I could. <laughs> I'm too lazy. Use the Google. <laughs> Did you ever read any Alias, the, the comic? The, the, this no. It's pretty good. No, I haven't. David Tennant as Kilgrave. Oh, the Doctor Who. Man, and Barty Crouch Jr. from Harry Potter. Oh, really? Yes. Who is that? I'd get into it, but you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. I, that's why I'm asking, because I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I didn't realize that he was in... Is that he was in the Harry Potter universe? He was. He was in uh, one movie, and then he died. Oh. Well, that's... The fourth. The fourth one. Thanks for bringing that up. welcome. All right. Okay. And Mike Coulter as Luke Cage in the Netflix original series. Marvel's A.K.A. Jessica Jones was developed by executive producer showrunner Melissa Rosenberg from Dexter. Rachel's ability to embody a character that must balance... Quote. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Wait, who's saying this? Is this a man? Yes. That's a man? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, the man voice out. Okay. Rachel's ability to embody a character that must balance both the darker and lighter elements of our series will provide a perfect emotional anchor for Jessica Jones, said Jeff Loeb, executive producer, Marvel head of television. You can stop the man voice. You're out of the quotes now. Oh, thank you. Okay. All right. 
Just try to be professional. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Marvel TV and movies, actor Terry Crews said that he wouldn't mind making on mind taking on the role of Galactus's Galactic Herald, the Silver Surfer. You know who else <laughs> I'd like to play? The Silver Surfer, Crews said. Wow. Did we, is, that, is that the actual audio of Terry Crews? <laughs> Sounds just like him. I always loved him. I, <laughs> I thought I had the build, the body. I could get on that surfboard. And if they ever do a live-action version of the Silver Surfer... I think that would be perfect for me. See, I wouldn't. I, I think he would be wasted as the Silver Surfer because he he's, he has such a big personality. Uh, Silver Surfer is, uh, for lack of a better word, just a very tame kind of character. I mean, he he's powerful and everything, but you know, he's always kind of well, usually rational. I don't know who he would. I, I thought he would have been great as Luke Cage. Of course, they got someone else uh, younger, I, I think, to play you know, to play Cage. Uh, but I was thinking about it. I wonder how he would be as Prince Namor. The interesting take. Yeah. Uh, of course, because Jason Momoa, the perfect Submariner, is not going. Right, he's going to be Aquaman. So now we can't have him come. If, if Jason Momoa was like Green Lantern or something, then yeah, we could still have him come back and be in the Marvel universe too. But he can't be Aquaman and Submariner. Well, I'm just thinking about Ben Affleck as Batman and Daredevil, and well, then well, and that's and that, then uh, that's that fine. Other guy, uh, Chris Evans. Chris Evans. Yeah, he's uh, Johnny Storm. Johnny Storm and Captain America. Yeah, but we're trying to forget the fantastic, the original Fantastic Four. Yeah, Daredevil never now. happened, and the Fantastic Four never happened. Okay, exactly. So yes. Clean slate. Right. Never happened. Okay. Yep. Right. That's that's <laughs> it's, it's it's not there. Right. Okay. Yes. Memory wiped. Yeah. Did you see the new Fantastic Four trailer? I did. I did. Um, oh, I I'm not. It. I'm not disappointed yet. I was oddly okay with it. Yes, um, that's. It, that, I don't know if I'm okay saying that, but I, I was. <laughs> I had that same exact feeling because because I instinctively think this movie's going to suck. Yeah. All, all you hear is the negatives about it, about you know different things, story wise or production. See, I, I hear. I I have the opposite where I'm constantly hearing people talking about how great it's going to be, but of mm. course they're basing it off of absolutely nothing. Of course, I'm basing my feeling that it's going to suck off of just the old movies, which of course this you know this isn't. So right. I'm just as stupid as these other, as the other people, uh, other people complaining. But I am looking forward to the Netflix series. I am too. Those uh, that, that I'm hoping they do a good job with that. You can talk more now. Okay, good. IDW Publishing has announced that they will debut a new collection of Disney comics beginning in March 2015 with the publication of Don Rosa's Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck Artist Edition, followed by four extra-length comic series launched in April, May, June, and July. April sees the debut of Uncle Scrooge No. 1, which will feature the best tales from creators around the world, starring the iconic tycoon adventurer. Donald Duck No. 1 launches in May, Mickey Mouse number one in June, and in July, Walt Disney's comics and stories will maintain the original numbering and launch with number 721 as the first IDW issue. I wonder how the people are going to take to these Disney comics. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know some people who would buy them. 
Yeah, but it, it, it's it's well. I, I don't know how they're going to be distributed. It's, uh, I would assume that they're, well, as we know, they're not going to be in supermarkets. These are uh, these are more geared towards children, and so I wonder wonder what that audience is going to be. Is it going to be the people who are really into? If you're not familiar with uh, Don Rosa, just a great artist, yeah, and I think I think a lot of people will look at. Disney art and just think, well, it's just Disney art, but I mean, it, it is fantastic. And even look, you know, looking at the comics, there's some really, really wonderful work out there that I think goes underappreciated by the general public. But uh, now they say that probably most comic art is you know, falls into that category. But there are some people like Rosa that's doubly true for where they're underappreciated by people who don't, who aren't really into the in, into collecting at all. All right, that one nowhere. Go ahead. Okay. The chance to bring Disney comics to fans, both old and new, is a fantastic opportunity. We cannot wait to get these into the hands of readers, says Sarah Gatiss, IDW editor. Oh. What? That was a quote then? It was, but it was a woman, so I can use my regular voice. I don't know. Uh, Should we redo that? Yeah, I think you should read it in her voice. No, well, I interpret her voice as sounding just like mine. Huh. So, What's uh, her last name again? Gatiss. What is that? Is that French? Something different than Heather, so I think it... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should read it, read it in a French accent. Let's not. Oh, <laughs> boo. All four premiere issues will offer 48 pages of content for three ninety nine, with subsequent issues offering 40 pages per issue for that same cover price. Each issue will feature two regular covers, as well as a unique cover that places the characters in different environments that feature theme park attractions, including April's Adventureland-themed cover, and other very familiar settings and costumes. Dynamite Entertainment... Oh, that was the end? Oh, that was was an uncomfortable ending. I should have done something better for that. The end. Oh, okay, good. Dynamite Entertainment is resurrecting one of horror's most infamous villains in Reanimator, a four-issue miniseries written by Keith Davidson and illustrated by Randy Valente. Featuring Dr. Herbert West, the mad scientist created by author H.P. Lovecraft, Reanimator number 1 ships in April and featuring covers by Jay Lee from Dark Tower, Francesco Francavilla, Afterlife with Archie. I have no idea if that's if you said that correctly, but Tim Seeley from Hack and Slash and Andrew Magnum Wilder. Oh, which by the way, I had uh, someone comment that uh, on last week's news, you, you, you were we were talking about a new art book from Dark Horse called Uncharted. Yeah, and I guess you were calling it like Uncharted or something. You were completely mispronouncing oh, it. Oh, was I? Yes. I'm and very so, sorry. yeah, the fans were angry. Sorry. Yeah, make make sure My you bad. read correctly here. Oh, can you uh, proofread these next time? <laughs> no. The Hercules wants you to. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said anything about the Hercules. You look the troll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. In Reanimator, Dr. Herbert West heads to New Orleans to continue his life's work. The Revival of the Dead by Purely Chemical Means. To accomplish this task, he recruits Susan Green, a young and wide-eyed pharmacologist fascinated by this, his macabre experiments. When I was a kid, I honestly, I, whenever I saw that word in the comics, I thought it was macabre. Oh. <laughs> well. One of the many words that... That I couldn't pronounce correctly until uh, until I was embarrassed in high school <laughs> and had to read out loud. And uh, <laughs> it was the epitome of macabre. Oh, 
my goodness. All right. <laughs> Initially unfazed by West's unorthodox practices, including how he funds his research by selling zombie brain fluid as a narcotic, Susan may regret her scientific curiosity as sinister forces, those aligned with elder gods and Haitian voodoo, begin to align against the reanimator. Jeez, I feel like I don't need to buy the book now. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Oh, I feel bad now. <laughs> reanimator number one is slated for release in April. Oh, maybe I should cut some of that out. I think so. Nah. You have me read all this. Hey, don't, don't act like it's a chore my favorite chore. That's right. From our good friends over at MarvelMasterworks.com, Miracle Man Book 3 will offer a variant edition cover by John Totalbon. Totalbon. Totalbon? Yes. Okay. The third collection of Miracle Man is coming out in premiere hardcover, and it's the one that wraps up the last of the original issues, number 11 through 16. I've been working on these for over a year now. Did you? Was it the second volume that had the the birthing issue? Did you color that? Person? Well, I did. I did do the colors. I just uh, I restored all the artwork. Oh, okay. Yeah, we uh, the, uh, our our editor Corey Settlemeyer was he was able to hunt down, and I mean hunt down uh, the original art for a huge portion of this series, which. Thank God, because some of if, if we had to restore from just the printed material, a lot of the stuff would have looked really awful. You know, uh, we're looking at you know Toddleman, even uh, Alan Davis's work in in this series. So much detail, so much gorgeous detail mm-hmm. uh, that we would not have been able to do justice with if we didn't have the uh, the original art. Plus, as with a lot of different a lot of books, the printing was really awful in some of these. Some of these we we found areas. Where every every version that's ever seen print up to now, uh, things in the background were just these big black uh, solid shapes, and you thought that was. It. But when we got the original art, there was just gorgeous detail mm. that just never had never seen uh, publication before, and so just just beautiful beautiful stuff. I'm finished. Okay, <laughs> three editions of the new volume, subtitled Olympus. Um, I think it's supposed to be Olympus. Oh well, if you proofread it. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, it might be Olympus. We'll be coming out with cover art by Arthur Adams. Art Adams. <laughs> Love Art Adams. Great. A variant with cover by Jim Chung, and the third variant, which features cover art by John Totalbin. Totalbin. The original artist of this run of issues. Editor Corey Settlemeyer. Settlemeyer. I've said his name a thousand times to you. you have it. Has made this We had volume. dinner with him a month ago. I didn't know what his last name was. <laughs> My goodness. Anyway, he has made this volume a bonanza of treasures with over 150 pages of bonus material, original art, pencils, sketches, character designs, house ads, unused pages, etc. Miracle Man Olympus is expected to ship on April 8th, 2015. Now I'm wondering, I'm hoping Olympus isn't the spelling error. Maybe this is called Olympus. I'm pretty sure it's Olympus. I remember that's the name of it. Like they're keeping the names of the trades, I'm assuming. Yes. So Olympus. Yeah. I, I hope I so. All right. I'm Heather Bates, and it is what it is. All right. Very good. John, let's take a couple minutes and talk about your project that you've been working on for quite a while now, Mostache. So let's. Uh, when did you start this? Oh, boy. Uh, I mean, we're talking... 
four or five years ago. I'm pretty sure you were, you were working on it when I met you. That's yeah, close. I might have been older than that. I, I don't know. Uh, I should know the exact answer, <laughs> but it's just it's been on and off probably for like five years, six yeah. years. And you just did your 150th? I think 132 oh. I'm working on right now. Okay. I do. I knew you were getting close. Good. And uh, oh, what, what's the web address? www.mostachecomic.com. M-O-S-T-A-C-H-E. And who's the writer? Brian Attendry. What else has he done? Uh, he's written a couple of his own books now. Um, I, I don't remember the exact names of them. I want to say they were Lovecraft in Nature. Okay. But he's written a couple of books. Nice. Uh, and so he's what, doing a little bit of everything, it seems like. And uh, you know, earlier we were talking about this before we started recording, and uh, you made it sound like you're not happy with uh, with parts of my art. Parts of I mean, art. I'm always. It's tough for me to to work on a page, um, finish it, and then go back and look at it because I just see problems. Yeah. You know, I. It's uh, it, yeah. I mean, it's just the, the process of an artist. I mean, I, they're never happy. Right. Exactly. So. That's all I was going to say. I mean, yeah. you, you, you're never you're never going to be happy. I'd say with, out of 130 uh, plus pages I've done, I'm, I like about two. <laughs> well, there, there was, uh, especially at the beginning, I, I started reading it. You were pro- I don't think you were even on like your 20th uh, strip when I first started reading it, and you could see. The, the, the leaps in uh, improvements that, that you had made already up to that point mm-hmm. and uh, it's been a, it's been a couple months I think since I've gone on to the uh, gone onto the site I could still I could still see more improvements as you were going especially in the uh, especially in your uh, layouts mm-hmm. I'm seeing a big improvement in your in your layouts how long does it take you to do a page if, if you could break it down to hours I realize you don't get to sit for an entire yeah. two I days mean it also I think I'll call it pre-baby, post-baby. Because <laughs> okay. pre-baby, I could probably do, I was doing a page a week, you yeah. know, and, and I was handling it pretty good. And then uh, the baby struck, the first one, <laughs> and then uh, like we had to go, yeah, Hurricane Olivia um, <laughs> struck, and then it was about a page. We we're going bi-weekly, so it was like every two weeks I would do a page. So it slowed down drastically, and uh, I think that's part of the frustration is just I, I don't have the time to put into it like I used to. Yeah. So. Has yeah. it even gone down further with the second hurricane? <laughs> hurricane Jack is it's leveled off the same, so I'm still biweekly with it. Um, you know, like I I tend to put it off a little bit. So I'll, when I do do a page, I kind of just start it on a, like a Friday, and I'm colored with it by Monday. Oh, so okay. I also think that's a bad idea because I'm rushing sometimes uh-huh. just to meet like my you know quote unquote deadline. Yeah. Do you have a definite end insight on this, or is it just something you're just going to keep going until you guys? I know Brian does have an end. I don't know um, if he's got like an exact number because I think at, at first we were going to go like to 100, and then it just you know certain things stretched out in the story, um, you know, expanded. I, I sometimes I would get a, a plot, you know, or, or a page to r- written out, and I would expand it to like one or two more pages. Yeah. Um, just because I wanted to fit more in there, so I don't know where the end's going to be. I Does want to end two hundred, and he gives you that leeway to be able to sit and uh, change things I mean, a little bit. Oh, fantastic! You know, we yeah. we used to talk more about it, you know, but he's he's basically said like if you want to expand on it or, or take away from it, you know, as long as the main core plot points are there to to take that. Wonderful. Yeah. So you haven't uh, printed any editions of this yet, right? It's all it's We've, all digital. We, right we're now. always talking about you know getting it printed, you know, whether it's going to be just a fifteen page sample or. Or just doing like bookended collections, but I think I think that would probably come when we decide when it's going to end. So we can, you know, do it in halves. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is eventually going to be printed at some point. We'll go back and edit some things, whether it's you know corrected spellings or maybe some <laughs> some art stuff that I can redo that I didn't like. Um, certainly some things to to redo. And I think sometimes I wonder like it, as far as when you're looking at it on the 
on the monitor of a, of a computer, you know, versus like printed. You know, I, I don't think I have to redo some of the lettering. Is it going to, you know, translate to being too oh, big? Right. Too small? I don't know. I'd have to kind of test it. Yeah, a lot to, uh, a lot to take into consideration. Yeah. Especially if you don't, if you don't have a set plan when you first start out doing, you know, doing these kind of things. And mm-hmm. as you know, it kind of, it can morph a little bit as you as you go along. All right, guys, let's uh, wrap this up. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Restoring History. Uh, before we go, I want to remind you to visit our site at calistration.com and check out our master series of high-quality art restoration prints. Our first set, featuring Little Nemo and Slumberland, is available to order now. These are restored directly from the original art, and you get a total of four 18-by-24-inch prints, full color, and they look great hanging on your wall or displayed in a standard 18-by-24-inch portfolio. New prints are available every couple of months, so visit often at KE. E-L-L-U-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N.com, calistration.com. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, John and Heather. And we'll see everybody next time.